You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Barry Nelbuff, who is a professor at the School of Management at Yale University, and also the author of multiple books, a co-author of multiple books, including Thinking Strategically, The Art of Strategy, Coopetition, and most recently, Split the Pie. Welcome, Barry. Thank you for inviting me. Now, I should mention that I think a lot of these books that you've sold many, many copies of, I might be partially responsible for some of the sales because I have assigned all of these. Who are my parents? <laughs> yeah, I've assigned all of these books in my strategy and, and game theory classes over the years, and I found them incredibly interesting and provocative and readable, which is not something you normally say about economics books. You know, game theory has been part of the strategy classes. It's been part of the academic curriculum in business schools for decades. And I think a lot of people would say that game theory is impractical. They'd say it's highly theoretical. It's very mathematical, makes all sorts of assumptions about people that are inaccurate or unrealistic. And yet students love it. And oftentimes, even though students are really, really bad at <laughs> understanding the precise logic of the different models, they at least say that, you know, out in the world, they will frequently make reference to the models that we teach them. Is game theory really an academic exercise or is it something that really does have practical uses for managers in the field? No, I like to say there's nothing so practical as a good theory. And in finance, you have Lack-Scholes and that's revolutionized the way people think about Pricing options. I think Moneyball has changed the way people have thought about using data in sports and regressions and the like. And my own life, I've had the opportunity to apply insights from game theory into negotiation, and it's been remarkably effective. The surprising thing from what I've learned is that when people are negotiating, they don't actually understand, they typically don't understand what the negotiation is about, what the negotiation pie is. And the game theory can help you correctly phrase the negotiation and thereby understand who's getting more, who's getting less, what's an appropriately fair division, who has power in the negotiation. Right. I forgot to mention that you're also a successful business person, co-founder of Honest Tea, which successfully exited and sold to Coca-Cola. And you've also got kombucha, right? So another yeah. beverage. And so you put a lot of these things into practice, but you mentioned negotiations and you've been teaching negotiations. I think my students, my MBA students tend to think that negotiations is the most valuable course. Oftentimes they use it to get the money they need to pay for their MBA before they finish their MBA when they renegotiate their, their contracts. But most people who teach negotiations are kind of OB people right? Psychology people, you know, the touchy-feely people. If you like, there's, yeah, there's two parts of negotiation. There's the Spock and there's the Kirk. There's the logic and there's the emotion. And I'm a big fan of emotions. I understand the, that aspect, but I'd say there's a missing element of logic. Let me take you back a little bit to the 1970s. There's a famous experiment by Ellen Langer and co-authors where they, she had her research assistants go up to somebody uh, who had a copy machine. In those days, they called it a Xerox machine and said, I'd like to make five copies. And 60% of people said, fine. When she said, when the person said, I'd like to make copies because I'd like to make copies, 93% said, okay. And if it was, I'd like to make copies because I'm in a rush, 94% of people 
And people took that experiment as an argument that if you provide a reason for doing something, people will say yes. But they took the wrong lesson away because they forgot about the second half of the paper. In the second half of the paper, she asked people to make 20 copies rather than five. And when she did that, and you gave a BS reason like, I'd like to make copies so I can make copies, it went back to no better than no explanation. And only when you said, I want to make copies because I'm in a rush, did actually people let you cut in front of them. And so one of my points here is that if you're going to succeed in negotiation, it's about arguing with a reason. It's not, I'd like to have more money because I'd like to have more money. It's not begging. And what game theory does and what logic does is allow you to frame the negotiation correctly and figure out the arguments for why you should get more. But I think when most people think about game theory, they do so within the context of rational maximizers who are always trying to, they're just thinking about getting the most for themselves. And they're not thinking about things like fairness. They don't concern themselves with principled versus unprincipled arguments. It just boils down to how much power do you have and can you do with that power? But I think in your, in your story, there's quite a bit of attention to things like fairness. And this seems to borrow from outside of game theory, but I think it's, it's really more empirical game theory. People do think about these things, right? And those are the people that we're negotiating with, right? So let's, let's answer those questions in the context of an example. I have this friend who made a big mistake. When he went to register his trademark, he forgot that the PTO trademark registrations are all public. And then when he went to register the domain name, he discovered that this troll, who I'll call Edward, because that was actually his name, had went and bought the domain name. And Edward writes to my friend and says, look, I'll sell you this domain name back for $2,500. Now, my friend had done a little bit of research and discovered there's an organization called ICANN. And ICANN has a dispute resolution program. And if you pay them $1,300, they'll figure out who's the rightful owner. And what Edward had done is called registration in bad faith. And so my friend was surely going to win this for $1,300. So my friend writes back to Edward and says, look, I'd rather pay ICANN $1,300 than pay you $2,500. And Edward, being experienced in this, knows that that's true. He's lost all the cases he's gone in front of ICANN in the past. And so he comes down to $1,100. My friend says, look, I'll, I'll give you $500. And Edward says, that's not enough. And $900. And my friend says, well, okay, just let's pause for a moment. Look, the reason we're negotiating is to save $1,300. Because essentially, look, I may value this domain name at 20000 But the fact is, I'm going to end up with a domain name whether or not we reach an agreement. Because either I want to pay you something for it or I want to pay ICANN 1300 So at the end of the day, you aren't going to have the domain name. I'm going to have it. The only question is whether or not we're going to pay ICANN $1,300. And essentially, I can't do that without you. And you can't get any of that without me. Now, when you're asking for 900, you're up 900, but I'm only up 400. So it's easy for me to walk away. What I think we should do is split it 650-650. I'm 650 better off the no deal. You're 650 better off the no deal. Edward comes back and says, well, you know, look, I've made this huge movement. I've gone from 2,500 all the way down to 900. My friend says, well, look, actually, the 2,500 down to 13, that's worth zero. Because until you got below 1300, I'd rather talk to ICANN. And from 1300 to 900, yeah, you moved down 400, but I didn't just go up 150 from 500 to 650. I went up 650 because I started zero, my friend. And so, yeah, you want to talk about fairness. Basically, I'm prepared to split the pie with you. The pie is $1,300. I'm not willing to do anything more. 
Edward says, nope, you know, 900, that's as far as I'll go. So my friend does it right back at that point. And a week later, Edward says, okay, we got a deal. Now, does Edward care about fairness? Does he care about the pie? Now, he's a troll. But the thing is, my friend was able to convince Edward that he cared about the pie and he cared about fairness. And so if somebody wants to do a deal with my friend, what do they have to do? They have to split the pie. And this goes back to the Lager argument about making a reasonable argument. Edward's arguments were arbitrary. It's like, I want more money because I want more money. I want to make copies because I want to make copies. My friend had an argument with a principle and a reason. And my view is that principles be arbitrary. And so in the end, yeah, Edward may not be the world's most rational guy. He may not care about fairness. He may not care about game theory. But nonetheless, the game theory arguments carried the day. And as you've probably guessed, my friend was me. And my other moral of the story is buy the damn domain name before you file for trade. Right. Cost you 12 bucks. Right. Of course. So I think in strategy and in negotiations, right, there's two parts. There's this value creation part, and then there's kind of the, the value capture part. And it's all about, on the one hand, figuring out what that bargaining space looks like, and then figuring out where within that, that bargaining space you're going to wind up. And I think this is one of the reasons why we, we talk about everyone as being frenemies. I use that term all the time in, in my class, and I can't remember if I kind of borrowed at least the concept, if not the term from your work, where we all want to maximize the size of the pie, but then when it comes to splitting it, that's when we all of a sudden you know, enter into this into conflict. And economists, going all the way back to Edgeworth, right, would kind of, they're pretty good at oftentimes describing what that bargaining space looks like, but then economists will just say, all right, any point in that space is a possible equilibrium. They really have nothing to say about it. They just say, well, it boils down to bargaining power. You know, it boils down, and then they leave it at that without really describing what the heck that means. And that's when the negotiations people come in. And we've been teaching negotiations for decades. And I think you, you argue that we've been teaching it kind of, kind of wrong. I mean, getting yes is a landmark, but it, it kind well, of- Or we taught half of it. So there are so many points that you made there that are great. First off, when I teach business strategy, I say, what you're trying to do is work with your customers, your suppliers, your complementers to create a giant pie and capture it. And when I teach negotiation, it's about your work with your negotiation partner to create a giant pie and make sure you get at least half. So I'm a Johnny OneNote. Whatever course I'm teaching, it's all about creating value and capturing value. And it's just that we change, we give different names to the players. So business strategy, negotiation, it's all birds of a feather. Now your next point is that negotiation theory has been silent about how it is you divide the pie. So what's great about Getty Yes, and I love that book, is that it is about focusing on what people's interests are rather than their positions. It's a terrific way of thinking about how we expand the pie. But nothing in that book tells you how to divide up the pie. They say things like, you should ask for objective criteria. Well, let's go back to my negotiation with Edward. Okay, I can't use the objective criteria of what the domain name is worth because that's not relevant. There's only one relevant number here is what I can charge is $1,300. How to split that $1,300 up? Is it $200 for me, $1,100 for Edward, $700 for me, $600 for Edward, $200 for me, $1,100 for Edward? Those all seem to be arbitrary. There's only one point in that space that is not arbitrary, in my view, which is 650-650. And the thing that people forget here is that we have equal power. If I walk away, that 1300 is lost. If he walks away, the 1300 is lost. 
And so it's not that I'm in a weaker position or he's in a weaker position. We're in equal positions and recognizing that both fairness and power lead us to this idea of splitting the pie. That also leads me to a different way of negotiating. What I, people start off often and they jump way too quickly into, I'll give you 650 or Edward, 2,500, some BS number he just throws out there. And what Fisher and Yuri say is, well, start off first understanding the other side, what motivates them. And what I want to say is before that, let's start off with some ground rules. Let's talk about why it is we're having this negotiation. The point of the negotiation is to create a big pie and split it. Can you agree with that? And if they agree with it, great. Now we're done, actually. We've done the hard part. Now we can work together to make a big pie. But if the other person says, no, actually, I'm just a greedy SOB, and my goal is to take advantage of you as best as possible, now I also know who I'm negotiating with. And I'm going to have to behave a little differently here. So I think people do not do enough talking about setting the stage and agreeing on a framework as part of the initial way of doing the negotiation. Well, look, I mean, some people would say that they're players that don't care about fairness. And we can set aside that for now, but assuming that everybody does care about fairness, people tend to have these different notions of fairness. And I think you argue that most people have a default view of fairness, which is based on proportionality, and but they're looking at kind of the wrong thing. Or they're, they're focused on badness, but they're focused on them in the wrong way. So I found that the pizza example, of course, we all know that New Haven is famous for its pizza. I, I ate plenty of pizza when I was there. Maybe you could walk through that pizza example, because I think it illustrates sort of the view of fairness that most people have and then why we're, we shouldn't really be looking at it that way. So people will say all the time, I've given you a fair deal, take it. And Chris Voss talks about that. Like, if I'm not being fair to you, let me know. But he never defines what fairness is. And people's view of fairness often depends on where they sit. And my view of fairness is it shouldn't depend on your position. So the example that I use to start the book is we have Abe and B negotiating over a 12-slice pizza. We have to say what happens if they reach an agreement and what happens if they don't reach an agreement. And so in this particular case, I'm creating some, uh, I'm showing my cards. Uh, It's negotiating over a Pepe's pizza rather than a Sally's. And Pepe's will give, sorry, I guess it was Alice and Bob in the book. So Pepe's will give Alice four slices and will give Bob two slices if they don't reach an agreement. Well, a lot of people think since Alice is getting twice as many slices as Bob, absent agreement, Alice has twice the power of Bob. And therefore, in dividing up a 12-slice pizza, Alice should get eight and Bob should get four. And I think that misses the point here because the negotiation isn't really over 12 slices. Six slices have already been spoken for, four of them to Alice, two of them to Bob. The reason we're having the negotiation is not to divide up 12 slices. It's to divide up the extra six slices that are created when they reach an agreement. And who is more important for getting those six slices, Alice or Bob? Well, if Alice walks away, those six slices disappear. If Bob walks away, those six slices disappear. So therefore, I think they're equally essential, equally powerful. You should divide those slices three and three. And therefore, Alice gets the four from no deal plus three extra. Bob gets the two from no deal plus three extra. So it's a seven and five division. I also think that once you say this, actually, it becomes obvious to people. And here's a a remarkable thing. We ran negotiations where we didn't give people any instructions. And the majority of people went and did 
the proportional split. Then we told the Alice's a little bit about the pie theory, just one paragraph. And it turned out that people moved their answer more than halfway from proportional to split the pie. So not everybody got it all the way, but essentially they went more than halfway towards what I think is the uh, fair solution. Moreover, we asked Bob's how they felt about this negotiation afterwards. And it wasn't that the Bob's were unhappy, actually. They respected the Alice's here. They said, okay, you've come up with an argument that is convincing to me. And so combination of when you make the argument, people see it, they understand it, and they may not be happy about it in the sense of, well, that's not the way we've always done things. But nonetheless, you're not being, I want more money because I want more money. Well, I mean, I think statically, if that's where we're starting, then I think it makes perfect sense. But dynamically, might this not create some perverse incentives? I mean, imagine that you don't want to build a skyscraper on some city block, right? And if you don't own 100% of the lots, then you'll never be able to build this skyscraper. So if we follow this logic, then presumably anybody who owns a postage stamp size of real estate on this block will wind up getting the same as somebody who owns, you know, 95% of the block. And it seems to be, it seems to kind of go against people's intuition. I mean, they're not going to get 95% of the total pie, but they'll get 95% of the the increment or the, well, that the, is the I mean, pie, they'll get, by one, the they'll, get a, they'll get a purport, they'll get one nth of the, of the increment. Right. And so people intuitively would think, wait, postage stamp guy should not get the same piece of the pie as 95% guy. So the world has treated folks that are thinking of proportional is the way to go. Couple things here. First off, if there's somebody else you can work with rather than this one individual has a spot, you know what? That person's going to get nothing. But if in fact that person has a critical space that you need, it's like, which is more important to the Reese's, the peanut butter or the chocolate? Well, you know what? You can't make the Reese's without either. If you make a peanut butter and jelly without the peanut butter, you got a jelly sandwich, not a PB&J sandwich. And so to the extent the PB&J is better than just peanut butter or better than just jelly, you got to allocate that gain equally to the peanut butter folks and the jelly folks. And it's not about how big you are. And we see that happening now in Israel. Well, we see it happening with Joe Manchin, which is, look, he's one senator out of 100. But at the end of the day, you need his parcel. And then until he says yes, we're not having build back better. We're not having changing voting rights. And so it's not how big you are. It's are you needed or not to make this deal? And there's no pie without Manchin. And in some cases, the Israeli government, there's no party without these small groups. And so they end up getting a huge share, particular way bigger than their, quote, proportional share, because in fact, they are critical to making the pie here. And we've got this perverse view that somehow somebody's size, whether it be how much money they're putting in is what matters, how much interest rate they're otherwise getting. But trick is to figure out what value is created through the deal compared to what happens if you don't do the deal. And if you're bad at what you do without the deal, you can find somebody else to replace someone, this fellow, this, yeah, then they're not going to get that much. But alternatively, if you don't give them what they deserve in this case, what their power is, then you can actually have trouble doing anything. And that's why they're going to say no. And then that property doesn't get developed. So one of the other things I think that people sometimes look is, or at least they, they think about is kind of the wealth or the, the urgency of the different parties. Use one of these examples of yours in my class where I'll talk about the red card and the black card, right? So I'll have a whole pile of red cards and my students will each have single 
black card and you need one black and one red to get a payment. And students, when we first do this exercise, almost all of them, they fail to understand that the bargaining power is, is symmetric. They fail to understand that without the red card, the black card's worth nothing and vice versa. And they, they look and they say, well, you have seven cards and I only have one. So therefore your bargaining power must be stronger. This seems to be a common fallacy. What, what accounts for this? I mean, they're just failing to understand the bad right? Well, I'd say as I've gone before, it's like people use rules of thumb. In terms of you're holding seven times as many cards, so therefore you're richer than I am, you have more power. But that's why game theory is so valuable here in terms of helping us understand what the negotiation is truly about. And if it turns out either party walks away in this card game, $100 is lost. And therefore, I red needs black just as much as black needs red. And so I don't want to claim that calculating the pie is always so easy. There's a lot of work there. But when you do it, then actually symmetry starts coming and making things clear. And you can recognize the equal power here. It's not how much money you have. It's not how big you are. It's not how long you've been doing things. It's what value you can create through this deal. Maybe I can give you uh, another sort of common example of where people fail to split the pie, but I think they're just missing it. In New York City, if you buy a property, there are two taxes that need to be paid. One is there's about a 2% recording tax on mortgages, and there's a 0.4% tax for the seller on the uh, sale price. And, you know, 2% and 0.4% add up to real money in New York City property. Now, there's a way of reducing those taxes by doing something called a SEMA, which stands for Consolidation Extension Modification Agreement. And under a SEMA, what happens is the buyer takes over the seller's mortgage if the seller already has a mortgage. So let's imagine that the seller has a mortgage that was going to be 500000 And so if the buyer takes over the mortgage, then whatever size mortgage they were going to take, they now take a $500,000 smaller mortgage, which means they save 2% on 500000 So they're going to save basically $10,000 on their recording tax. We also lower the price of the property. We lower the price of the property by the amount the mortgage is being taken over because now the buyer has to pay the bank, not the seller. So the sale price goes down by this mortgage size of 500000 So that means the seller is saving 0.4% on a half a million or $2,000. Now, what I would say is that there's $12,000 of savings that's happening. But if you're not careful and nobody does anything to correct this, each side is going to take the savings on the checks they have to write. So the seller basically writes a $2,000 smaller check to New York State. The buyer writes a $10,000 smaller check to New York City. And the end result is the buyer is getting five times the savings of the seller. And the question is, is that really right? No. That basically if the seller says to the buyer, hey, you want to do a SEMA? I love that idea. But basically there's 12000 I want to get six. I'm only getting two. So you have to give me $4,000. I don't think the buyer has an argument against that. And what happens in life is people only look at what they're getting out of the deal, not what the value is being created by the deal. And if you're able to see how much I'm gaining and the other person, and they were both needed, you see this as $12,000. And it's basically, yep, it's six and six. Well, I think this process, what it requires is for people to rigorously isolate what is the value created as a result of the agreement and to kind of strip out everything else. But people bring all sorts of 
baggage into negotiations. We talk a lot about the sunk cost fallacy and how people tend to focus on what's already in the past and what's already happened. And so a lot of people will say, well, I've worked a lot harder to get us to this place, or I've oftentimes the, the amount of effort or the amount of work or whatever they've had to do to, to kind of make this thing possible in the past. That's a hard thing for people to give up on, right? It's hard for people just to kind of isolate the Delta or isolate what it is that, that they're getting in the increment. How do you overcome that? It is hard. Yeah. But there's great value if you're able to do it because then it allows you to see clearly what's going on and you don't make arguments that ultimately don't make sense. Now, I don't want to claim that in some sense, if one person has to work a lot harder than the other, then we should ignore that. So the person who's doing the harder work in some sense should be compensated for the effort associated with that. So I was talking about effort that happened in the past, right? Okay. That, that's, you but know, it's there's already, also sometimes effort right? in the present. Then, mm -hmm. you know, one side may have to go and draft a lot more legal documents to do the SEMA. Okay, well, let's, let's that pie is smaller. It's not then the full 12,000. It's the... Let's compensate this person at the hourly wage that they're getting and say, okay, that's, yeah, that's $2,000 worth of effort. And so the pie wasn't 12, it's 10,000. Fine. And so uh, just because one side is working harder, they have to be compensated for that. And that reduces the pie. Now, in terms of what I've already done, you know, it's a question of, okay, it's sunk, it's sunk, whether or not we do this deal. And so I'm either going to lose that and get nothing for it, or I'm going to lose and get nothing for it, but something else because of the pie. And yeah, you have to train yourself to think about the fact that why are we having this deal? It's not to recover the sunk costs. They're sunk. It's to make this new thing happen. It helps to have someone else who's read your book, right? <laughs> if you're negotiating with them. And so are we making certain presumptions about rationality? Do you have to engage someone in a negotiation differently if they are less capable of seeing the, the game theoretic logic of what you're proposing? Well, let me go back to Edward and the domain name, right? Edward's $12 cost to buy the domain name is sunk. So we're not going to discuss that anymore. And is Edward particularly rational? I have no idea, but he was rational enough to realize that I had an argument that worked for me and he was just throwing spaghetti on the wall. And in fact, people often say in terms of irrationality, oh, start with a really high number and scare them or soften them up. Actually, I think that's counterproductive. This is the idea of anchoring. You can get sunk by your own anchor. Because when Edward's out there starting at $2,500, and I say, guess what, Edward? There's a $1,300 alternative. And next thing you know, he comes down to $1,100 and then $900. What Edward has shown me is he's super flexible. That whatever he says doesn't mean anything because he basically keeps on moving. Whereas I've made an argument that's a logical argument and I can stick with it. And so one of the things I find is that, yeah, people claim they're irrational. But the process of doing that also shows you have no reason for what you're doing. And so again, it's you wanting to make copies because you want to make copies. And yeah, you have this emotion, but emotion, I think, ultimately gets toppled by principle. Right. And you mentioned that your students who are wonderfully nice people in normal circumstances, as soon as you throw them into a negotiation setting, they become these awful people right, who are trying to get 90% of the pot and they're, they're making all sorts of threats and so forth. What do you suppose that is? I mean, it seems like people do that even if they haven't been kind of corrupted by training in economics and, and game theory and so forth. Where does that come from? Oh, oh, well, please don't accuse game theory and economics of the one who's <laughs> corrupted them. I think well, it's TV uh, and radio uh, and uh, books and uh, fiction stories of, I don't know, Jack Reacher or whatever that 
basically, people think to become a successful negotiator, you have to be this sort of hostage mentality and give them nothing or issue ultimatums because those look, that's much more fun when you're writing about it in a book. So they become sort of this jerk. And the problem with being a jerk is one, they're not actually very good at it because they're not naturally born jerks. And two, all of the skills and the empathy that you need to be a great negotiator goes out the window. And what I want to suggest is that if we're working with the other side and we've agreed up front that we're going to go and split the pie, then actually now we're on the same team. Because what we want to do is make the pie as big as possible. And that's where your empathy, your emotional intelligence, your IQ all come into play. And they think, oh, it's all about trying to beat up the other side. This mentality of, in order for me to succeed, they must fail. The sort of the win-lose part. And like I said, one, they're not good at it. Two, it makes the pie small. But we can get away from all of that if what we can do is early on agree to the framework where we're going to create a big pie and split it. And do you think that people fail to exercise adequate levels of empathy in order to increase the size of the pie? I mean, I think a lot of people enter into negotiations with kind of a, a zero-sum mindset, and they're thinking that the negotiations can only take place along a single dimension. My late colleague, John Morgan, who also taught game theory here at Berkeley, he described the game theory course as a course in, in empathy and in perspective taking and said this was a really important part of game theory. And of course, not only can empathy help you with game theory, but game theory can help you with empathy. Why is it that people sort of fail to adequately take other people's perspectives, thereby opening up opportunities for positive sum negotiations? Uh, well, you know, We've had various leaders, presidents, who sort of think in order for me to succeed, you must fail. And so they mimic these tactics that actually haven't worked. You know, if you take the view that Mexico is going to pay for the wall, what happens in the negotiations? The Mexican president cancels his visit to the United States. And so you end up with zero in that particular case. So they don't necessarily have great role models. Sadly, negotiation is really never taught in high school, in college. And so it's not surprising that people go to stereotypes in this regard. I completely agree with John Morgan. The word that I use here is allocentric rather than egocentric. Ego being self, allo being others, and that the key to creating a big pie is to understand the other person's perspective. And now here's the funny part about it. What I argue is that when you figure out what the other side wants, you should give it to them. And most times when somebody asks for something, it's like, well, if they want it, I can't give it to them. But actually, if I can give them what they want, guess what? I can get what I want. And so the best way for me to get what I want in negotiation is to figure out and give the other side what they want, which doesn't necessarily mean more cash. It's, that's going back to Fisher and Yuri. What is their real interests? And if I can solve that problem so I can make it so they really are happy to do this deal because they've got what they want, then I'm able to achieve what I want. And, and that's where, if you like emotional intelligence and empathy and asking questions and answering questions, people think they can't say about what they're trying to achieve. So one of the negotiations we do, a couple is selling a gas station because they want to travel around the world. And the buyer system will, why are you selling? And people are afraid to say, oh, I'm retiring or none of your business. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, the buyer knows they're selling because there's a for sale sign price. And there are bad reasons and good reasons. A bad reason to sell is this gas station is about to become a super fun cleanup site. Or they close the entrance ramp to the highway near here. And so there's going to be no more cars coming on and off the highway for this gas station. The fact that I want to take a trip around the world from the buyer's perspective is actually a great reason for me to sell because it doesn't mean anything 
problematic about the station. And so people are so focused on worrying that they're going to be taken advantage of, they don't actually give them the information that the other side needs. Now, in particular, if you tell somebody, I'm going to go and take a trip around the world for two years, let's say on my sailboat, then the other side can say, well, okay, let's see, what are some challenges you might have? Like, what are you going to do for money when you come back? Okay, well, well, we got a boat. We got to sell the boat. Huh? Well, how long does it take to sell a boat? Yeah, you know, I don't want to do a fire sale. It might take six months. Okay, well, you know, could we lend you some money when you come back? Guaranteed, buy the boat. Uh, and that way you can get more money for the boat. So you're not going to be in a rush to sell it. Pretty cheap for us because we got good security. We got that boat. And so now I've understand, I've understood the person's problems and I may be able to solve some of them. But I can't get a clue if they tell me they're retiring or they're moving out of state or something. So essentially, by opening up and sharing information and working together to solve problems is how we are able to create pie. Well, it seems like there's two principles in economics at work here, right? So economists generally believe that more information leads to better outcomes, right? You're more likely to get to the Pareto optimum if you have more transparency, more information. But we're also aware of the idea that information is power, right? And of course, we also know that asymmetric information is a problem, right? So we seem to have these differing, conflicting views of information. And it seems like in negotiations, most people tend to gravitate towards the idea that information is power. And so they, they hold their cards very close to their chest, like they're playing poker. You know, you don't want the other side to know what you're holding. And I think you're arguing that that's probably a mistake and that you really want to be as transparent as you can. I mean, there may be some circumstances where you don't want to reveal, but your bias is towards revealing even your, your BATNA and letting them know, hey, what your best alternative is or what your deadline is or how desperate are you. So why is that? Why would we be better served being as transparent as possible, even knowing, like revealing what your bargaining power is? So let's start with, I'm not so keen on revealing all that information until we first had an agreement that we want to create a big pie and split it. And so if you tell me, no, I'm a jerk and my goal is just to take you to cleaners and get as much as possible and I need to win for you to lose, yeah, I'm going to be more clamming up. Mm -hmm. uh, in some sense, I have less of a problem opening up when I know I'm, gonna ha I'm getting half of anything we can create together. The other thing is people are afraid that in some sense, if they say what their reservation number is, their BATNA, they're going to be pushed to their BATNA. But let's go back to that negotiation with Edward. I told him that my best alternative to negotiating with him was paying $1,300 to ICANN. Does that mean I'm going to have to pay him $1,299? Right? Because basically it's a buck better than going to ICANN. Mm -hmm. Well, the other answer is I could pay him a buck because that's a buck better than him getting a useless domain name. And so my view is I'm not going to be pushed to my BATNA any more than he's going to be pushed to his. And yeah, at $650, $650, I'm getting a large amount. He's getting a large amount. And in some sense, if I don't reveal that, you know, it's going to take me forever to get him below 2,500. Moreover, I'm going to have to play his game about just throwing numbers out there, pretending to walk away. It's going to take forever. Who knows when they end up hating each other in the process. And so essentially revealing your BATNA doesn't mean you get a dollar more than your BATNA. But people are afraid of that because they don't have the other sense of, yeah, I want to get half the pie. And in that case, then I'm in a lot less trouble. It's a lot less risky for me to reveal what's going on. And you mentioned the example of deadlines. You know, imagine we've got two negotiators, Alakai and Bernice, and Alakai's deadline is Wednesday at five and Bernice is Friday at five. 
Bernice thinks Alakia's deadline is Friday at five. So in that circumstance, sometimes Alakia will just keep his mouth shut and he won't reveal. He's, oh my God, you know, you learned my deadline. I'm in trouble. But actually my view is Alakia's deadline is Bernice's deadline. Because if they don't reach a deal by Wednesday at five, they're both going to end up getting zero. And so, yeah, Alakia should reveal and say to Bernice, you know, I'm sorry to tell you this, but actually we both have a deadline of Wednesday at five. So let's stop messing around and actually get serious. And again, they're just so focused on their ego rather than thinking about the aloe and thinking that essentially this other person has a Wednesday deadline and they just don't know it. And so I need to share it with it. I need to share this with the other person. Now, one of the most interesting insights that I got from the book was this idea that differences in beliefs about the world can actually kind of increase the bargaining space, right? And so, look, we know that differences in preferences will increase the bargaining space. And the example that you use is, I want the fruit and you want the rind. And if that's going to open up a bargain that wouldn't be there otherwise, or I like the beets and you like the broccoli, right? And that opens up some bargaining space. But differences in beliefs about the world, maybe I'm more optimistic and you're more pessimistic, that opens up opportunities that, that wouldn't exist if we all agreed on the probabilities of what could happen in the future. That also seems, I think, counterintuitive. I think most people would start from the presumption that we have to agree on the world and how the world works and what's going to happen in the world. That's sort of a prerequisite to successful negotiations. So I love this idea. And I was wondering if you could kind of dig in into it a little bit. The rind example is not mine, just to, uh, to be clear. You use the bro broccoli and broccoli, broccoli and beets. Broccoli and beets. So let's start with that. If we have three scoopings, three health servings of broccoli and three scoops of beets, and I like broccoli and Gregory likes beets, shouldn't give each of our, each of us one and a half scoops of, e of broccoli and one and a half scoops of beets. You should give me all the broccoli and Greg all the beets. And that's what I said, by the way, about giving the other side what they want. Because that, that's your, I mean, that's your, that's your basic Edgeworth box, right? I mean, that's yeah. basically saying you've got finite resources in the world, but you can still have variable utility as a function of the allocation, right? Next point is connected to that. Does it help me to say to Greg, you know, this broccoli is really the best broccoli I've ever had. It doesn't get stuck in your teeth. It's been cooked at Chez Panisse perfectly, al dente. It's actually more like broccolini. If I do that and Greg tries it, and then he says he loves it. Well, now I got a problem because now he's not so keen to give it up to me. So again, I don't want to change Greg's view about what I have and what's valuable to me because he just gave me something that was really easy for him to give me. And but I isn't there, isn't there any, wait, but, but isn't there an informational cue there, right? So if they're not fighting my beliefs, doesn't that say something? If you say, you know, I really want that plot of land and they're like, you can have it. <laughs> like, isn't that sort of, maybe I should... Because they're willing to give it to me so readily, maybe I should be a little suspicious of it? Yeah. Well, there's a little bit of the a sense of, you tell me sort of of these various vegetables, you know, which one you want the most, and I'll tell you which one I want the most. And if I don't tell you which one I really want the most, then I'm going to end up with beets, or I can end up with something, I don't right. know, cauliflower or something in between. That it's hard to get what you want if you don't reveal what it is you want the right. most. Now, there's a question of so, how much so you you'd have pay to, for it. You'd have to be able to credibly communicate that these are preferences, differences in preferences or differences in utility rather than differences necessarily in assessments about underlying quality. That, that becomes a little trickier, right? Yeah, I'm not saying this is so easy to do, but so I start, we started with broccoli and beets. Now we have to get to different beliefs. Why well, I say there's nothing really different about understanding 
what a patent is worth or what future profits are worth than understanding what broccoli is worth. And in some sense, if I am more optimistic about the future of this business, then I'm the person who really likes broccoli. I want the future profits. And we can each agree what cash is worth. So essentially, I should take less cash and more future profits. And you should be willing. You're happy because you're giving less cash up front. And in the end, you give up something that's cheap to you, which is future profits. Now, you're right that I should take into account the idea that you are telling me something because if you don't believe future profits are that valuable, then maybe I shouldn't think those profits are as valuable. But, you know, I may, people don't always agree about the world. And by the way, the last thing you want to say is, Barry, you're an idiot for taking those future profits because if you're taking something worth nothing, if you've changed my mind on that, then yeah, I'm going to demand more cash up front, which is what you don't want. So you'd say, yeah, it's great you're taking those profits. I know you can put a lot of effort. I know you're going to make this thing successful. And so I'm happy to share those profits with you. And essentially, there's really no difference between thinking about how much I value future profits or how much I value broccoli. Essentially, we're making trade-offs of payment today, beets today versus broccoli, future profits. And the folks don't have to agree about what it's worth. In my own life, I really missed an opportunity on this. So you started off by talking about my first book, Thinking Strategically. And that was written with my former professor and then colleague, Avinash Dixit. And we went to W.W. Norton. And our, at that point, our publisher was Drake McFeely, who later on became the president of W.W. Norton, the chairman. And he offered us a standard 15% contract. And I said, well, how about 30%? And Drake said, well, if I give you 30%, I won't be able to cover our overhead, our editing costs, our marketing costs, my salary. I said, okay, well, that's a fair point. Uh, what are all those numbers? And he pulls out a spreadsheet and he says, yeah, they, they come up to about 75,000. So I said, well, if we give you 75,000, can we then get the 30% royalty? And he said, yeah, I, yeah, I'm prepared to do that. Now, Avinash had not written very many popular books before. He'd written no popular books. The best, you know, he had sold 2,000 copies. And who knew if game theory would be I, a I popular bought, subject? I, I, I'm, I bought one of those too. Yeah, yeah. They're good books. Let me just, I, I love what he does. And so uh, he said, no, I, you know, I, I'll stick with a standard contract. And part of what he's thinking is Drake knows more than he does in terms of how many books this is going to sell. But of course, what Drake doesn't know is how, many, how much effort we're going to put into this book, how hard we're going to work to make sure it's written well, what we're seeing in terms of student interest in game theory and the world interest in game theory. So I followed Avinash's suit. I could have said, look, I may not have 75000 to put in, but I could put in 37500 and get my half of the extra 15%. In the end, the book sold a half a million copies, and my failure to do that cost me over a million dollars. Now, essentially, not only is it the sense that I'm betting I want more future and less present, but also it gets the incentives aligned correctly. I've done that now for the new book in terms of profit sharing with some of the publishers we're working with. And Michael Lewis has written his 17 books, all with Norton, and one reason he sticks with them, besides great editors like Drake McFeely and Starling Lawrence, is that he has a 50-50 profit share with them. So he doesn't get anything up front. They cover their costs and he splits the profits. And because essentially he wants the broccoli, he wants the future, he believes it's going to happen. And so both sides are basically creating a giant pie and splitting it.
Now, of course, if people are overconfident, this can lead to problems. I've seen NFL players, whenever they present themselves, they'll typically enter into these performance-based contracts that have completely unrealistic right, performance metrics, and they usually wind up getting injured and getting getting underpaid. And usually the agents are a little bit more savvy as to, right? So one lesson there is maybe have an agent that can advise you on, on the contract to some extent. Have an independent person who might push back about the fact, well, the fact they're willing to give you all this broccoli might mean this broccoli is a little bit old. Uh, (laughs) So you should be worried about this. And say, no, no, I really love broccoli. I got, this is what I care about. And so, yes, you could end up getting something that in the end is not worth as much as you imagined. So how do we apply the fairness principle here then? If we have differing beliefs about the size of the delta or different beliefs about the size of the incremental pie that we're creating as a result of our partnership. What does fairness mean in that context? So boy, that's a hard question. And fortunately, I have an answer. There's two ways we can think about fairness, ex ante or ex post. So one thing we can agree to do is split the pie, whatever turns out to be ex post, in which case then it doesn't matter that we have different views of what the pie is because the end, the pie is what the pie is. The other is that we split the pie based on our expectations, what's going to happen. And that allows us to create a bigger, better deal up front but it could turn out very differently than what we expect. So the question is really, do we want to apply fairness to the ex-ante perspective at the time we're signing the contract or ex-post once it actually happens? So you cite the Talmud and you mentioned that people have been thinking about negotiations for a long time. And some of these principles that you see are actually quite useful. And there was this principle of the divided cloth. And you found this to be super useful in all sorts of disputes that people are confronting today, like sharing costs of runways or sharing costs of pipelines or sharing costs of, of elevators. And I, I love the elevator story, right? I lived in a condo once and, you know, if you live on the first floor, you're like, well, why, why should I pay for the elevator, right? <laughs> you know, the person on the top floor is the one that's going to use the, the elevator. And, but oftentimes we default to kind of equal, equal sharing. And I guess maybe that's okay if it's capitalized in, in the price that you buy the thing for. But if it's a collective enterprise that hasn't happened yet, how is this principle useful, this divided cloth principle? So let me first go back to the elevator and then I talked about the Talmud. There was a great recent story in the New York Times about this gentleman, uh, sorry, the New Yorker, about this former student of the authors who has a business now of retrofitting old apartment buildings uh, with elevators. And essentially, the elevator system he installs has keys. And without the key, you can't go to, you can't go to an arbitrary floor. You can only go to the floor that your key allows you to go right. to. Right, yeah. And if you live on the 10th floor, that elevator is worth a huge amount of money If you live on the first floor, you don't care. And so what he charges people for the keys varies on the height of the elevator. Whereas in the United States, we have this crazy notion that everybody should be paying the equal amount for the elevator. And so again, the elevator is creating this pie and typically we divide it up unevenly. What's even more amazing about this is that the people on the ground floor are getting some of the surplus. They're saying, you want the permit to put the elevator in that's going to increase the market value of the 10th floor apartment by a lot. I am got that. Remember that story about the real estate person who has a little spot? Yeah. Without my saying, yes, we can't get the permit. So not only am I not going to pay anything for the elevator, I'm going to get paid to make this thing happen. And it turns out that as a result, actually they're building lots of elevators 
because the people on the ground floor aren't stopping it. And the people on the 10th floor are getting a huge pie and they're sharing it with all the other folks. So well, now that's an example of a, how, that, that, that's an example of a third party coming in and utilizing some kind of metering technology, right? I would say it's using the pie theory. It's basically what's the value that's being created. And the old story of proportionality, one view is everybody pays the same amount for the elevator. When you do that, the people on the ground floor basically veto it because they're upset. Other folks are getting a huge amount. Sometimes they have to pay for maintenance, electricity, which is how actually it's typically done in the United States. Wildly unfair. And so the end result is no elevator. In contrast, it's an expensive thing. Well, the person on the 10th floor is going to make all the money from it. Yeah, they should be paying a lot more than the person on the third floor. And when you do that, then everybody sign, kind of signs up, including the person on the ground floor who isn't making anything, but is being bribed because essentially their permission is needed. And so I would say that by understanding the pie and dividing it more evenly, actually we get the deal to happen. The next, going back to your earlier comment about the Talmud, this idea of splitting the pie is not new to me. In fact, it's from the 2,000-year-old Babylonian Talmud. And it comes from a principle of the divided cloth, but it's a little obscure, a little hard to explain to people. And so essentially what I've done in the book is take this idea of how you resolve disputes and show that that same principle is really implicitly what's in, in this notion of dividing the pie. The, the thing that's hard in life is to treat two people who are differently the same. If Cain and Abel are both going to get a $100 gain from doing this transaction, yeah, whatever it costs, split it with them because they're the same. But what do you do when Cain's benefit is 100 and Abel's benefit is 200? We don't want Cain killing Abel here. We need to find the solution that essentially treats people in different positions equally. And that's what the principle of the divided cloth does. And that, in my view, is what the pie does. We have one notion of fairness in this world, which is equality. Proportional division treats dollars equally. And what the pie does is treat people equally. So a couple more questions. I was asking, you mentioned this example of being a pawn, right? And being leveraged in negotiations. And I love this example because I teach that case, the Holland Sweetener case that you mentioned in, in the book. And you see this in, in recruiting contexts where people are applying for jobs and then they want to leverage that offer to kind of get a better job. How do you know when you're being used as a pawn to enhance somebody else's BATNA? And what can you do to avoid investing all of that time and effort and energy in becoming a pawn? Well, in improv, there is a, a line which is saying yes and rather than no but. I'd like to adapt that to saying yes if. And what happens in, is that people are constantly asking the employers to do something, potential employers to do something for them. But they're not telling them that if you do this, there's a there there that I'm prepared to say yes. Now, the extreme version of this is the Questrom School of Business at BU, at Boston University. And if you want BU to give you a job offer, you have to first agree with them what the salary is going to be. And then they'll go through the process of interviewing you, writing letters, taking a vote, reading your papers. But essentially, BU has been used way too often as a way of my approving my salary at Yale, you approving your salary at Berkeley. And they say, we're worried that this person is essentially not serious about coming or that the person has grandiose views of what they're worth. They think they're worth a half a million. Nah, they're really worth 300,000. And so there we are from the job and they say, yeah, it takes 500,000. It's like, I'm sorry, what planet are you on? And so let's see if we can actually reach a deal on salary. And then we know that there's a there there, 
Now we're prepared to do everything else. Now, McKinsey and Goldman Sachs like haven't gotten to that point yet. But oftentimes you're going to ask your potential employer, say, look, if I can get a bigger bonus, I'd like a vacation to start now. I would like to have a guaranteed bonus because I'm giving up something at my existing job. And you're going to ask somebody to do something, make an extra step for you. And what you should let them know is that if they do this, they've got a deal that there's a there there. And in some ways, it's kind of funny because it looks like you're giving them a free option. Because if they do this, then they get you. But actually, you're getting something in return, which is you're allowing them to go over their head and going to their boss or to make the exception, going to the CFO, going to the board. And essentially, the person you're typically negotiating with has some limits. And if you want them to go above their limits, make it do something unusual, then they want to know that they're not going to get burned for it. Because you go and make an offer to somebody that's a, a super high salary. And other people learn about it. It's like, wait a second, you know, why didn't I get that offer? And it's one thing to cause that dissension if you get the superstar. It's another to cause the dissension and the person doesn't come. And so essentially, I would say that what people don't do often enough in a negotiation is let the, they say, no, unless, not unless, rather than yes, if. And that doesn't tell the person, well, okay, I know you're not going to come at this level. I don't know. If I go and make the extra mile for you, it'll actually be successful. So I encourage both candidates to say yes, if, and the firms, if you'd like, to help them get to that point. Like, well, okay, if we do this, are we done? As in done, 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 nothing else, done, super done, done and done. Yes, done. Okay. You quote Larry Summers, who famously said, there are idiots, look around. <laughs> and I think uh, you appropriate that and say, there are jerks, look around. And, you know, no one wants to negotiate with a jerk. And so people often say that they want to build a reputation for being oh, hardball negotiators, right? So when people talk about Trump, for instance, they'll say, oh, yeah, you know, he's got a reputation for being a hardball negotiator, and therefore you better give him what he wants. But I think you argue that will frequently backfire and that having a reputation for being someone who increases the size of the pie is going to attract people to you. And, and I remember I had a conversation with the JD MBA, who now works at the Venture Capital Fund, and he said that when he took negotiations in law school, he was congratulated for getting the huge share of the pie. But then when he went to business school and he repeated the same tactics, the professor was like, okay, so this guy did really well. Would anybody ever want to negotiate with him again? And the answer was no. And he realized that you know, when you're doing a single iteration, the rules are very different from when you are going to be doing things repeatedly. And in small environments like Silicon Valley, you develop a reputation very quickly for being someone who's a jerk or not. And you talk about the Moffat Studio. I want to hear, I'd love you to repeat that story because I love it. But you say that maybe that's not a smart thing. Let's first finish the jerk story. What's remarkable is some students will antagonize all of their classmates over fake money on fake cases. And, you know, they're there to network and learn and, and make friends. And next thing you know, it's like, well, wait a second, do I really want to hang out with this other person who was taking advantage of me in this particular way? And you say, if I'm never going to see the person again, but I'm going to tell you that even in the process of negotiation, you're going to see the person again because the negotiation generally isn't over like that. And you're going to often learn much more about the partner through the process of negotiation. So you might be asking for things that are outrageous. Well, when you go and make a low initial offer, it's like, well, okay, let me just see if I get this right. You're doing this because you don't know what this business is worth. You think, I don't know what this business is worth. You're trying to take advantage of me. And so now you've basically told me that I can't trust a thing that you're going to say, because either 
You think I'm an idiot? You're an idiot. I don't know what's going on. Or you're just trying to take advantage of me. That doesn't make me very receptive to want to negotiate with you. So I'm saying it's not just even a reputation for future negotiations. It's a reputation inside the negotiation we're having. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm against doing the jerk strategy. Boy, doesn't that sometimes work though? So I had recently, I had a rat in my house and I needed to get rid of it. So I called a couple of these rat extraction companies and one of them, you would love this, was actually called the Honest Rat Removal Company, which already was a red flag. So anyway, I called in the one one company and they said, all right, it's going to cost you like $2,500 to seal your house from rats. Then I brought in the Honest Rat Removal Company and they said it was 30000 Now, look, they're being jerks, but surely that must be, it must work. If it works 10% of the time, then they're going to get, they're going to make more money than, than the legit rat company, right? I got it. So look, there are people out there who essentially survive on taking advantage of uninformed folks. And yeah, you can get away with it sometimes. When you're negotiating with a, a rube, uh, it's always inexperienced. But if you know what's going on here, then boy, your view is not only am I not going to do business with those folks, I tell everybody else not to do business with them. And it's a problem. And so, yeah, there's two strategies in life. You can try being the unfair but there's not a lot of pie creations going on here with our rats, let's just to be clear. Uh, so it's just really more of a pie division story. And that is a strategy some people play. What I'm suggesting, and I hope, is that your audience, people who listen to this podcast, are not the folks who want to do business that way. And moreover, you know, a lot of negotiation advice kind of goes away if both people are reading it. Because you can't you both play that game. So I go back and say, yeah, I'll give you 27 cents to do this. And now you're so stupidly far apart. It's like, well, you know, are we ever going to get there? As opposed to, here's what the different prices are in the market. If you let me do this on a rainy day, I'm more prepared to give you a great price than on a, another day where I can, if I get a cancellation, I can do it. I can save you money this way. So there's some ways possibly to make the pie bigger. If I could use you as a reference, I'd be happy to do something as well in that regard. Now that brings us, I think, to the Moffat Studio. So I hope I haven't forgotten that. Many folks use this case as an example, an exemplar of how to negotiate. And this was the presidential campaign of Teddy Roosevelt. And during that campaign, nearly it was a close uh, campaign, there was a flyer that was printed, which had a photograph of him and I think his running mate, Hiram Johnson. And they had printed up 3 million copies of this campaign brochure, but forgot to get the copyright permission from Moffat. And that was a problem because in those days, it was a dollar penalty per photograph if you didn't do the copyright. Interestingly, Roosevelt himself had been the one who signed the law authorizing this uh, penalty when he was previously president. This time he was running on the Bull Moose Party. So at that point, OK Davis, I love that name, realized things weren't OK. This was the campaign manager. And he said, you know, what am I going to do? And what he does, and now I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the gentleman who he turned to. Perkins. He was a potential presidential candidate himself. He, was a, he worked for Standard Oil and, and big influential guy. He was on the board of J.P. Morgan. So he turns to, he was a campaign finance person. He turns to Perkins and says, what should we do? And Perkins makes a telegraph to Moffat Studio, which says, seek to use your photo for campaign. Great publicity for you. How much will you pay us? And they come back and say, we've never done this before. How about 250? And with that, the press is a running. What's remarkable about this story and what we love is that Perkins was allocentric rather than egocentric. 
he realized he was in a desperate position, but he also realized this was great value for the Moffat Studio in terms of publicity. And so he understood there was a really big pie and didn't just necessarily give all of it to Moffat Studios because since they valued it, they could be valuing this at 10000 as well. Now, here's the place in which I part company from the standard interpretation of the story. Imagine Moffat Studios had come back and said, huh, haven't thought about this. Give us a day and we'll revert back. Now, I say, well, no, really, I don't have a day. The campaign thing is tonight. I've already printed the damn brochures. Now, if I'm Moffat Studios, like, damn you, you're playing games with me here. The only reason I was willing to pay you is I thought you could use somebody else's photograph. But no, you're not doing that. You tried to get us to pay you for something, whereas you're really in a desperate position. I'm now going to stick it to you. Whereas I think if instead Perkins had said to Moffat, look, we made a mistake. We printed these brochures. We'd really like to use them. We think it'd be great publicity for you. What do you say we call it even? Or what do you say we pay you $100? I think they're going to say yes. And I won't have the great story of, oh, I tricked them into paying me. But I also think that it was in some sense too clever by half. And that essentially, yeah, I don't have to pay them 10000 or $3 million because they have a value for this as well. But if I've effectively lied to them by misrepresenting the situation through omission, and they ever discover it because I have to come back to them and say, I need your answer right away. Why do you need it right away? Because <laughs> they're in the mail. Then I'm going to be in trouble. Well, there was one author who I invited to be on the podcast and he responded, or actually his agent responded and said, well, what's the fee? And so I said, well, at the moment, we're not charging anything. So I was hoping that that would get a laugh and maybe, but I, I never heard back from, from that agent. So um, uh, anyway. So, with me, it was, I think it was more honor than rarium is what you told me. <laughs> That's right. So I guess last question, negotiations is so important. It's in economics, we talk about mutually beneficial transactions. We talk about Edgeworth box. We talk about Pareto optimality. And then when it comes to getting there, it's, it's a black box and economists aren't often super interested in the details of what happens inside that black box. And we kind of leave it to, to the OB people. Why is it important for economists to kind of delve into what we might think of as the, the, the market structure or the, um, the microstructure of transactions and negotiations? And how is a good understanding of the science of negotiations practical for most participants in this business world? So this brings me right back to where we began with the Langer experiment. That when you're negotiating with somebody, you have to do two things. You have to divide the pie, and you have to create the pie. And the way most people go about trying to divide the pie is either arbitrary, give me this much money or I'll walk away. Or it's, I've got twice as good, I can get four slices, you can get two slices. So I want eight, you get four. Neither of which make any sense. And so if you want somebody to do a particular answer, I jump in line in the Xerox machine or agree to a split of the pie, you have to give them a good reason, a principal reason. Not just, please give me more money because I need more money. I want more money. And essentially, understanding the notion of the pie, understanding that both sides are equally essential. I can't save the $1,300 for ICANN without Edward. Edward can't save it without me. We can't save those $12,000 in the case of the SEMA, in case of the mortgage deal, unless both of us sign this paper. And so realizing the symmetry that exists between the players in a negotiation when you correctly measure what the negotiation is about allows us to understand the key things of negotiation, what's fair and what power is. And as a result, we don't end up getting confused. We get to see straight 
And then we get to reach an agreement. And then having reached an agreement about how to divide the pie, now we get to join hands, be on the same team, and work towards making the pie great and big. And so to me, that was a, an open space, a, a blue ocean that nobody had really, their advice had always been, get as much of the pie as you can. Well, both sides can't do that. I want advice that I can give to both sides. And there's one thing both sides can do, which is get half the pie. And so I hope that we can change the way people negotiate. And there's two things you need to do with the book. You're going to need to convince others to go along with this. But first, you're going to need to convince yourself. And I hope today's podcast is a good start of that. Thank you for all these amazing questions. And I look forward to chance to uh, see how it all plays out. So check out the book, Split the Pie. I mean, of course, all the other books. But there's also a website, splitthepiebook.com, where you've got some cool kind of videos of negotiations using actors, right? Some of which are highly amusing and great other advice in there. Thanks so much, Barry. I appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Mm-hmm.